This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What is it that you give up when you join a company? Do you own your own time to to dream. Basically, Mattel is arguing that even if you come up with things that are in your dreams at night, um, they own it. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the rule of law. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and I write about those things for Slate. And while the Supreme Court is off vacationing this summer, we are hosting a kind of legal geek book club with a series of scorching, sizzling summer legal beach reads about the court, which is like a thing. And this week, I'm actually not kidding. This is a... This is a beach book uh, about the courts, and I'm delighted to welcome Professor Orly Lobel to the show. Orly is a professor of law at San Diego, and she's going to talk with us today about her award-winning book, You Don't Own Me. It was published last year. She was the author of a 2013 book called Talent Wants to Be Free about corporate innovation and secrecy and what she thinks of as cognitive property. So interesting. Uh, this newer book, You Don't Own Me, actually takes that focus on intellectual property, but directs it at an epic legal battle involving high-heeled blonde dolls, we call them Barbies, and crazy corporate espionage. So, Orly, welcome to Amicus. Thank you. Now I'm going to say the sentence that I never thought I would say on Amicus, which is, this is about Barbie, and <laughs> it's about Barbie versus Barbie brats. Uh, and it's an amazing uh, legal pylon that lasts for a decade. But I want you to just before we get into what the book is about, help listeners understand why there's a through line, you know, all the work that you've been doing about uh, intellectual property and keeping secrets and who owns ideas. There's a straight through line between Talent Wants to Be Free, your last book, and this one, right? Absolutely. I started working on researching really deeply this case that that's the basis of the whole story of You Don't Own Me while I was writing Talent Wants to Be Free. And really what I wanted to do was show that we know about a lot of these legal battles when we look at Silicon Valley. We know about the Facebook uh, startings, and there was a whole movie that uh, Aaron Sorkin fictionalized about these legal battles there and everywhere in the tech industry and also in the financial industries. And I wanted to bring the same sort of dynamics that are happening in the entertainment and toy industry into the public mind, into public awareness. And and I guess one of the questions I have again before we start is so much of the work you've done involves Silicon Valley and the dot-com world and tech, uh, but this is just about dolls. So I, I guess I'm curious if this is an old fight or a new fight. Is it a fight 
around ideas that has changed because technology has changed or because we're just talking about dolls with shiny hair? Uh, this looks a lot like what might have been an IP fight 20, 50 years ago. The fights are getting bigger and more frequent. The structure of market competition is changing everywhere. The value that companies bring into markets is much more reliant on innovation, on brands, on, on the human capital, the, the talent that they employ. And that's why we see in every industry a struggle to recruit the best talent, to poach from others, but also to keep whoever is really good employees to keep them from then competing, from them moving on to a competitor or going on their own and creating new things that would compete with the old brand. It's just become a practice of um, employers and especially of large corporations that have these very standard contracts to try to fence all of the ideas, the innovation, the skills and experience of the, whoever they hire through these really generic clauses where you're signing away um, basically your freedom to, to move on. And we've actually been seeing this also in the right now with the Me Too movement where um, it's just very standard that companies today demand NDAs demand non-disparagement clauses, and with that also they demand non-competes and innovation assignment agreements that are really broad. So I promised we'd talk about icy cool Barbie versus sassy brats, but before we do that, I have to ask you to just talk a little bit, Orly, because it's so crazy about the history of Barbie. She's she's uh, older than she looks, right? <laughs> she's ageless. Uh, she's uh, cool and plastic and um, maddeningly perfect. Uh, she uh, has a secret history, which I uncover in the book. She uh, is not all American as she was presented and introduced by Mattel in 1959. She um, actually was reincarnated um, from a German... Uh, basically adult toy slash prostitute cartoon that was this girl woman who traded her sexuality for, for money with uh, uh, adult German men. <laughs> nice. I guess I didn't think about this until I started reading. But of course, giving tween girls or preteen girls a Barbie is entirely a different thing than giving them a baby doll, which is what everything else was, right? When Barbie gets invented. That was a huge innovation in the toy industry, and it was um, Ruth Handler who claims the invention. She was the founder of Mattel. She thought girls want to want to play with what they can see themselves turning into, and mothers might buy this overly sexual doll for their girls if they can be convinced that it will actually help them be career women, think about fashion. Uh, so let's do away with just, you know, giving girls babies to, to cradle. Your story really begins, or this litigation begins, uh, with a gentleman by the name of Carter Bryant, who is, like, designing dresses for Barbies at Mattel, and he's feeling stifled, and he's got all these ideas. T take, us, take us through how this becomes really the big intellectual property toy smackdown that it grows into. 
Right. So the story begins in our current time, basically, where um, Barbie has been dominating the industry for a long time, uh, really 90% uh, share of the doll market. And we have, as you described, Carter Bryant, a shy, creative, gay, um, very um, passionate designer for Mattel, uh, not not so happy about being at Mattel, but he he works for the Barbie line, and he feels pretty much um, disillusioned by the ability to create new ideas at Mattel. He never gets anything that he proposes developed, any new doll line. Mattel is not interested. It's very much like um, a straightforward economic theory would suggest where if you're the dominant actor in the market, you really have very little incentive to introduce new products. Um, they actually use in the corporation the term cannibalization. They don't want to cannibalize Barbie and her success. They just want her to, to be the only doll on the block. And so um, Carter has all these ideas of dolls that are... Um, more reflective of our realities. So first of all, Barbie is not only ageless and, um, you know, icy cold, uh, plastic, but she is basically very much white. Um, she was introduced as, you know, a blonde and Mattel had many years of these kind of back and forth, one step forward, two steps back of, um, having, more um, multi-ethnic dolls, uh, uh, bar Barbies that are, are not just blonde. Um, and Carter Bryant takes some time off from Mattel, designs something that he thinks is much more of our time. Uh, he calls them brats. He um, designs dolls that have a more realistic body image. A, they're multi-ethnic. They're fun. They're sassy. They're um, what he feels is more empowering to girls today. And um, he he sells the idea to a small competitor of Mattel, MGA, which releases Bratz. And for the first time in nearly sixty years, suddenly we have a real real competitor to Barbie. Uh, she knocks Barbie off her pedestal in the holiday season and girls want to buy brats. And this all happens without Mattel knowing about, you know, what's going on. Um, they actually don't know that Carter Bryant is behind the this idea for brats until much later, until brats is actually released. And um, the story is really tragic um, for for Carter. Um, he's basically kind of written off by by both companies, um, and he becomes this pawn. Where um, when Mattel actually discovers uh, a couple of years later that he he had sold the idea to MGA, um, he sued. Um, MGA is sued by Mattel. Mattel claims that. They own the entire Bratz empire because of this contract that he once upon a time signed with them. And that's what starts a decade-long 
roller coaster litigation. So, so you mentioned um, that some of this is contract law, some of it is intellectual property law. Can, can you just chunk out for us what the what the issues become in the litigation? I know it goes up to the Ninth Circuit and then it comes back, but can you help us just figure out what the the, the size of the field is here? It's a mixture of contract and copyright and trademark, as you say. So the claim of Mattel is that because Carter Bryant was their employee, um, there are doctrines in intellectual property law that say that anything that he invented uh, that was kind of work for hire or he was hired to invent, they own and they're claiming that he developed these ideas, the sketches, he drew the sketches for these dolls while he was an employee of Mattel. And that's true, right? He did that. Is that correct? That he was still working for Mattel when he was brainstorming this? Or is that is that in dispute? There's some dispute about the moment of Eureka and what exactly happened in his mind. And then in during weekends and nights um, while he was working at Mattel. Um, and that's part of what's fascinating in this in this long trial and what drew me to tell the story, because it really brings out the personalities and, and this question of where does creativity come from? Um, who owns ideas? How do they happen? The bottom line is that, yes, he did do some of the planning um, to, to leave Mattel and to sell these ideas and the sketches to MGA while he was still working for Mattel. So the question becomes, what is the extent of copyright uh, protection, um, whether copyright uh, protects ideas and not just concrete expressions. Um, copyright should not protect just ideas. So um, as the Ninth Circuit says when they reverse the first decision um, in this case, they say uh, anybody is free to look at sketches and say, this is a great idea for bratty dolls, for sassy dolls. Let's develop them, you know, let's develop something it's only really the protectable, um, concrete expressions that are the subject of copyright. And those lines are really, really difficult to draw. And they, they're the basis of a lot of battles in, um, in copyright law. Uh, it's really fascinating how this, this body of law has developed and, you know, whether we think of, um, features, for example, of, of the human body, which dolls are. Um, as protectable, or these are, you know, something that if you have a teddy bear um, and I'm another toy company, I can also, you know, design a teddy bear because they all uh, relate in some way to something that's out there and 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 real, and it's not really um, specific ideas or specific expressions that are owned by the company. So that's part of the battle. The other piece of it is that they say, even if these are not copyrightable elements, um, these ideas of a bratty doll, um, we still own it because Carter Bryant signed away much more than that. He signed that any innovation, any ideas, any uh, improvements, any designs, so a lot of non-legal terms, just kind of very broad um, catch-all phrases about what you do as a worker, all of that um, is owned by the company. And that becomes really interesting um, to to explore on what is it that you give up when you join a company? That becomes uh, what in in the book and also in the in the trials um, is labeled 
the weekends and nights battle. Um, do you own your own time to, to dream? Basically, Mattel is arguing that even if you come up with things that are in your dreams <laughs> at night, um, they own it. So it's the entire period when you're employed, they own everything that you invent. So w- what happens? How is this ultimately resolved after <laughs> millions and millions of dollars and years and years and buckets and buckets of lawyers? H- how does the case get resolved? Yeah, it's a lot of twists and turns and it it's a huge uh, reversal of fortune. So uh, in the end, it's not only that Mattel loses its claim over Bratz and the Bratz empire, but things happen in the second trial after it's remanded uh, by the Ninth Circuit to the lower court. Things happen that expose the Mattel Corporation um, as a very problematic co- corporation, and there's a lot of counterclaims that are added by MGA um, about Mattel's practices. So corporate espionage, spies at the toy fair, um, questions about corporate ethics uh, with recalls when Mattel discovers that some of its toys are produced with unsafe conditions or toxic uh, dolls, um, questions about antitrust um, problems. So Mattel really announced war against MGA and Bratz. And so it became, um, I argue, completely irrational in the ways that it went about competing with it, both in using the sledgehammer of litigation that was, um, I thought, a losing case. And the second court thought that, the second uh, set of juries thought that, uh, but also in all of the ways that they competed in the market, which was counterproductive. This is what's really fascinating about the, the case is that it was tried twice. And the first time, really, Mattel gets it all. The, there's a jury and a judge that announced that Mattel owns the entire Bratz empire, um, that MGA has to stop producing any Bratz doll, stop using the Bratz trademark. So th- this this flip is really what triggered my interest in, in explaining um, how much we should care about the lines we draw in, in both employment law and, and contract and intellectual property law and um, how effective uh, a good uh, attorney and telling the story can be. Because uh, I, I really think that the mindset in the second trial really changed um, when Mattel was... Uh, described as a different kind of corporation and the competition was understood to be something different than what it was presented in the first trial. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to take a moment to talk to you about our membership program, Slate Plus. If you are hearing this, you're listening to the regular version of our show, which is awesome. But if you sign up for Slate Plus, you will romp through the show commercial free and you'll get access to amazing bonus segments and extended versions of your favorite Slate shows. It only costs $35 for your first year. $35. And you can sign up for free for two weeks just to check it out first. One more thing. By signing up for Slate Plus, you will be supporting this show and all of our journalism here at Slate, which, you know, is more important now than ever. To learn more and to begin your free two-week trial, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. And we are back with Orly Lobel to talk about her book, You Don't Own Me. So so you have these internal memos that you write about where Mattel is talking in-house about, quote, a rival-led Barbie genocide rapidly grows. I mean, it's crazy talk, right? This is, you know, I had a skipper. I was kind of a skipper more than a Barbie person. But this is great, right? It says, quote, this is war. Sides must be taken. Barbie stands for good. All others stand for evil. I mean, it is it is literally the stuff that that is going on that you're describing where, you know, Mattel looks like the dark lords in the midst of this who are just willing to burn everything down to keep Barbie pristine and pure. I mean, it's the paradox, I think, at the heart of the book. But it's interesting because, you know, you're saying there was this reversal between the first and second trial. Is that because Mattel, you know, is smoked out as the evil overlords or is that because... Uh, there's better lawyering or is that because I mean, I know there's a lot of places where where you're noting that uh, the optics had changed. Uh, is that different guidance from different courts? I mean, what really is the reason that uh, MGA goes from being, you know, losing everything to prevailing in the second round? Yeah, I think it, it's a combination of, first of all, the um, Court of Appeals saying on the law, really, we should be very cautious in how we interpret these very expansive contracts. And we should understand also copyright law to have um, very clear limits of not everything can be deemed property. We should allow competition. So already the second trial is framed in that way um, of really being um, very careful about what is copyrightable um, what was turned over by contract. Um, but the mindset is very much part of the, the explanation and the story. Uh, so the, this idea that somebody stole something from Mattel becomes uh, just very difficult to support when all this evidence comes out about how Mattel had a whole unit that was called, or at least at trial it was called, how to steal the how to steal manual and how to steal corporate arm. Um, it was it was called in the Mattel Corporation the intelligence department, and the whole um, setting was a team of people who were sent to the toy fairs. Uh, issued fake names, fake business cards, fake stories about who they are in order to steal from competitors um, their their market plans and, and their kind of next uh, big toys. So that definitely made um, the jury more skeptical about what's going on. There are a lot of th- 
Other things that really were introduced in the trials that drew me to the case, it, it involves questions about ethnicity and immigration. So it's really a story of uh, David versus Goliath, but the David is not Carter Bryant, who is like uh, too small of a David to even fight the, this big corporation. Uh, so Goliath versus off. Goliath. Yeah. It's, right. It's it's, one, well, it's yeah. still um, an underdog. So yeah. Isaac Larian is the uh, founder or CEO of uh, MGA. And he was very effective in the trial. In the first trial, it didn't really work in its favor. Um, he presented himself as uh, this American dream, Iranian American um, immigrant who starts with nothing, founds his own company, and then he gets sued by this huge behemoth. Uh, he is in trial every day with his family. He presents um, his passion about the toy industry, all of his ideas to um, promote play, and he names uh, his his brass dolls, uh, on, you know, for like his daughter and and son, and um, he. At some point in, in the first trial, this is not really working to his favor because um, there's a evidence that there is some racism in the um, in the jury by the jury. Um, a, a, a juror comes forward and says that one of the other jurors says that all Iranians are thieves, and the judge in the first trial, um, Steve Larson says, oh, yeah, that's that's not okay, but probably didn't affect anything. <laughs> um, in the second trial, I talked to jurors that were really convinced that um, these, these adult men, these corporate CEOs, were in some ways personifying the dolls that they were putting out. So, you know, the cold, icy CEOs of Mattel who the executives didn't really want to be there, um, were kind of above everything, um, were no longer passionate about what they were really doing. Um, it could be selling cheese, it could be selling um, computers, and it could be selling toys. It really kind of, it was all business and uh, it was all the bottom line of um maintaining their dominance in all, at all price. Um, and then we had Isaac Larian, who really cared about the ideas and the inventiveness and, and the market, the, the industry. So there's a lot of storytelling going on uh, before the jury and, and in the minds and hearts of the people involved in the cases. Um, and, and that comes through. I think really that affects the, the outcomes of the case. It's so it's so funny because I'm listening to you talk and I'm watching my producer doubled over in laughter at the like black ops of Mattel, you know, like Mattel just like dun, 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 running through toy conferences. It's so it's so nuts. And then sort of layered over that, you're also describing this unbelievable world of we're, we're letting, you know, Mattel and MGA ha litigate who is an American in some sense. You know, what are what are our iconic, you know, idealized uh, visions of American womanhood. There's really, it's so strange how, and layered over that, of course, is Me Too and NDAs, which you you mentioned at the top or a piece of the story. It's really incredible that a fight, you know, between Barbies and brats uh, has so many threads of the kinds of anxieties uh, we're all living through in our non-Barbie-based lives. 
Absolutely. And, and of course, the Bratz Barbie trial is not the only trial that Mattel has been part of. So this, this, um, impulse to control, as you say, who's, who's the all American girl? Uh, what are the images of womanhood that we put out there in, in the fashion and entertainment and toy industries? And who controls that image? Who owns that image? That is the basis of so much courtroom drama that um, I, I I uncover throughout the 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 book. So it's not really just the this case that starts us off, but Mattel has been suing for decades. Um, any artist, musician, film producer, and competitors that had different visions for you know what what Barbie can look like. Um, what what she sings, what she does, um, who she is, and that play play on play really is. Um, I think it's really important. And again, I, I started by saying that I brought this these battles that happen in corporate America um, in every industry, and I think this story is really universal in that sense. I brought it to these industries um, because I think they are so important. You know, who creates culture? How is culture maintained and how is it challenged? This is some, you know, these are the questions that in some ways affect us the most from the moment we are born, you know, more than whether we'll get this kind of um, sort of new technology in our iPhone or not, you know, there's kind of minor differences between Apple and Samsung smartphones or whatever it is. Those are also important battles, but um these cultural icons are with us and they shape the way that we dream and the, the way that we play, the way that we interact, the way that we perceive others. And you discover when you go through the history of these courtroom battles that law is all over the place. <laughs> law, law is really shaping the path that these industries have been going. And it's interesting because I think that it, it's pretty clear, you know, you describe in the book. I mean, I know, you know, you were in a sense you were when your mom was researching uh, children in play, you were kind of exhibit A and she was watching you and your own complicated relationship with dolls and with girls and dolls and with gender uh, is definitely running through this as well, right? So this isn't even just you reflecting on American culture. This is reflecting on you as, you know, your mom's daughter and you as a mother. I mean, this is this is in some ways... Uh, you thinking through what all American girl imagery in play does to our children? Yes, and and I'm not even American, but uh, I am the um, daughter of a psychologist who studies gender development, and as you say, I'm in that sense I'm a character in the book because she posed me um, at the age of six and on in. Uh, experimental psychology studies and videos where I was playing with boy toys and girl toys, uh, Barbies and tiaras versus trucks and soccer uh, balls and showed these videos all over the world. And the results were really striking. When I was playing with the boy toys, I was perceived by the subjects of these studies as um, having more leadership skills, higher intelligence, more potential. So very early on, I became a critic of the toy industry, and not just uh, you know playing for fun. Um, 
And, and I am a mother of three girls. So I think about play seriously and, and I make, you know, choices like we all do about, um, what to buy our kids and, and how to direct them and, you know, help them kind of develop their sense of identity. Uh, one of the things that becomes really important in all of this to me is the idea of choice. So like with every other industry and with every, every other field, um, what's really important is that we have openings, uh, not, not kind of this idea of, okay, let's just get rid of Barbie. Um, that's, you know, first of all, it's not an option, but the other thing is that there are, it, it's much more mixed. As you say, it's, there's ambivalence in all of us of, you know, how we react and interact with, um, sexuality and, um, girlhood, womanhood, you know, the, the kind of images that we put out, um, our own, you know, dual or multiple in identities as, um, mothers and sexual beings and career women. Um, it's, it's complicated, but what's really important is not to have one corporation or one organization or a government, you know, telling us this is the one way that we have to kind of live within this, this realm. So, um, what I hope, uh, is also evident from the book is that intellectual property is another, uh, place, another forum in which we play out a lot of our questions about what is speech, what is, um, democracy, what is, um, exchanges, democratic engagement and, and, um, creation, you know, cultural creation in, in a healthy society. Orly, I was thinking about, I, I, I love Justice Brandeis used to call the curse of bigness, you know, when things get too big. I mean, he was talking about banks and money concentrated, but it, it does feel, and I think, you know, hearing you talk about Mattel going after, you know, the band Aqua for the sound song Barbie Girl. I mean, it just seems as though at some point, and I think you've made this point about Steve Jobs and Apple, at some point you become so big that you stop valuing innovation and creativity and you start, you just use your bigness to crush other people. Uh, is that is that the moral of this story, that bigness bigness at some point begins to be at odds with the kinds of creativity that brought us Bratz dolls, but also I think, and maybe again, this is what connects this Me Too moment um, and the NDAs and Harvey Weinstein to your story um, about, about Mattel, and that has something to do with at some point you're so big you can actually use the law to crush other people. Yes, bigness is... A lot of times it's um, equivalent to basically having monopoly power or, or just too much power that corrupts. Uh, and it corrupts in several ways. Um, one is what we said before, the kind of idea of not wanting to cannibalize your own success. So um, it's a very simple economic model that's been confirmed and tested out, uh, in reality. Um, Kenneth Arrow, who's a Nobel uh, laureate in economics, suggested this years ago that there's just li little incentive of whoever has the one product that everybody uses 
to create new products because they're already, you know, they already have such a huge market share. So that's why we need an active industry that has new entry that's healthier in that sense of entrepreneurship and uh, less concentration. But there's something more than than just that. Uh, I think that, again, what you just said about using litigation and using the law in ways that uh, really confirms your dominance and and staying power and resources to go all the way through with litigation is is a real big problem in in um, so many aspects. So we see. Um, Right now with me too, we see a lot of settlements that are secret. Uh, we just had the Supreme Court decision about mandatory arbitration agreements and, you know, class arbitration, uh, not even being part of that. Uh, so, or, or waivers, um, being enforceable of uh, waivers of class arbitration. What all of this means is that when we have unequal Powers very very unequal um, sides in the the race to the courthouse. Um, there's going to be just a huge difference in who is willing to fight it out and who will just have this. Most of us will just be chilled. Uh, there's going to be a huge chilling effect on what risks we're willing to take, what behaviors we'll, we're willing to engage in. So I've actually argued about all of these clauses that they have a chilling effect that goes way beyond what we see in litigation. Yes, there's a rise in trade secrecy litigation. There's a lot of fear by employees that when they leave, they're going to be hit by an NDA clause and their, their employer is going to say, you took something away from us. Uh, you're using whatever you learned with your new employer. Um, so there's, there's all the time, um, active litigation in, in those fields. But what we don't see is below the, the tip of the iceberg, all of these decisions that are really private and passive about not speaking out, about not moving to a new employer. So to me, again, it's to connect it to me too. It's, these are the two sides of the coin. It's exit and voice in the workplace, in the marketplace where individuals, um, fear to speak out against power when it's overly concentrated, when it's very, when there's not a lot of options. And I've, I've recently written actually, um, about Fox news and, um, this question of who spoke out um about sexual harassment and uh the in fox um i i talked about it as a prisoner's dilemma and you know all this kind of game theory question of if you're the only one who's going to speak out you're going to be crushed and so you have um very little um incentive and and just very little chance to to win um so so there's there's that internally but there's also not enough exit if, you know, you can't move to others and, or other workplaces, other options. And so the two feed into each other where we see power as corrupting and, and the law supporting that. I, I, I love one of the reasons I wanted you on the show, Orly, is because to draw a line between A.O. Hirschman, exit voice, power secrecy, 
and the sleepover Barbie kit is it is it is a master it is really that is a masterpiece of of uh, legal analysis. Orly Lobel teaches law at the University of San Diego. Her specialties are employment and intellectual property, and her really gripping book uh, about Mattel versus MGA, Barbie versus Bratz, is called "You Don't Own Me." It was published this past year. Orly, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that is all she wrote or podcasted for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. If you want to get in touch, our email is amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. And June Thomas is a senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we'll be back with another episode of the show in two weeks. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.